It's uh, my great pleasure to introduce to you Professor Keith Critchlow tonight. He is the President Emeritus of the Temenos Academy, was the co-founder with Kasson Rain and Philip Sherrard of Temenos back in 1979, and I always remember his intimate association with Temenos going back to the 1980s when I first became acquainted with Kathleen and involved with Temenos. He has had a distinguished career as a practicing architect going back to the 1970s, was invited to various sacred centers around the world, including the University of Tehran, where he worked on a mosque there, a hospital for Shai Baba in India, a monastery for Tibetan monks in Colorado. In 1992, he was appointed director of research at the Princess Institute of Architecture. And many of you will remember how in the Temenos Academy, was first launched back in the 1980s. We all lectured or, or attended lectures there at the Princess Institute. Professor Kishro has held a number of eminent academic positions, including being a tutor at the Royal College of Art Painting School back in 1974. He was later a fellow of the Royal College of Art, director of Visual Islamic Arts Unit there in 1984. And in 1989, he established a new department where they had an MA and doctoral degrees um, being taught. Between 1993 and 2001, he served as the director of the Visual Islamic and Traditional Arts Department at the Prince of Wales Institute of Architecture in London. Professor Critchlow is also the author of a number of books some of which are on the table over there, which you can um, purchase afterwards, uh, including Order in Space, 1970, Islamic Patterns, 1976, and The Sphere, The Soul, and The Androgyny, 1985. Anyway, with that brief introduction, I would like you all to join me in giving a warm welcome to Professor Critchlow. Um, to this gathering where he's going to be lecturing for us on envelopes of being a comparative study. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I'm here to talk about Martin Ling's and I'm very grateful for the young lady who's in the audience for asking me to do so. I'm not adequate to do it, but um, I shall do my best. And the main thing I have to say about Martin Lings is that he has been a major influence in my life and a major influence in the things I've been able to do. I would actually describe him as probably one of the most distinguished Englishmen of his generation. And I say that with deep feeling and love for him. And the reason is that he spent his whole life searching for the truth and as far as I'm concerned, no doubt, found it. There are many things that I could say in sort of remembering different times I spent with Martin Lings, but I, the main thing that I'm going to talk about tonight is that Martin Lings gave me some, a piece of wisdom which has enabled me to, to look at many other traditions with, with, with deep understanding, and for that I'm, I'm eternally grateful. I had the honor of taking um, Dr. Martin Lings to Highgrove to meet our royal patron and to have a private conversation with him. We spent a lovely time in the train traveling down talking about things. I also spent some time in India with 
Martin Ling's. And it was on that occasion, it was the first time I was able to see him fully dressed in his Sufi regalia. And that is something not all that many people had the good fortune of seeing. <laughs> Absolutely wonderful. Now, I also got into quite hot water about Martin Ling's because I attended a conference where um, Fritz Schumacher, Fritz Schumacher wrote the book, Small is Beautiful, and he announced at this conference that there was a saint um, in the British Museum. And I thought, that's a strange thing. I didn't heard of that before. <laughs> anyway, I had the foolishness of mentioning that Schumacher had said this, and Martin told me off quite correctly. He said, and who is Schumacher to judge? <laughs> he was absolutely... Anyway, Martin was being duly modest, but in fact, he, the fact that he was given the job of being the keeper of the Arabic manuscripts in the British Museum was a great honor, and, and in actual fact, a very uh, d discriminating choice, because not only somebody who could read these manuscripts, but somebody who could find the depth and meaning in them, which is so important. Um, Funnily enough, I think probably the Beta Department, which we founded some time back, was probably, uh, it's probably due to him. I took two of my architectural students to see him um, in the British Museum and found a deeply modest man. Uh, but the two students who I took to see him are now both quite distinguished teachers of Sufism. I won't mention names and so forth, but it's rather interesting this, how these things happen. The other thing, reason why I say that I think Martin should be considered, and it might take another hundred years before he's finally understood to be so, to be a really important man of his generation, Englishman, is that he was also a great expert on Shakespeare. He may have been a Sufi, he may have been this, he may have been that, but in fact his insight on Shakespeare was absolutely um, eye-opening to say the least. Anyway, enough of that. The other thing I'd quite like to do is to say this book has had a great influence on me, and if anybody wants and hasn't had an introduction to Sufism, I would highly recommend this book. Having said that, one cannot but suggest that those who haven't got a copy of this book should also have it, because that's really what Martin Ling stood for, the return to the spirit. So this talk that I'm going to give is really about perception, and I'm hoping it's an acknowledgement of what perception I receive from Martin. It won't be pictures of Martin Ling's on the screen, but there will be, hopefully, the images I'm going to show are what I received from him. And it's all to do, ultimately, with perception. The major crisis on the planet at the moment is our crisis in perception, perceiving what it is we are, what world we live in, and so forth. I think it was Rumi who said, there are four worlds, and we only live in one of them. And that is really what uh, Martin Ling's introduced me to. What are those other worlds that we are neglecting? So, having said that, and as it says in the Holy Quran, all, things, all life comes through water, so I must have a drink. Um, we'll have the first slides on, please. Um, the book on the right is the book which contains, um, in fact, I would... I would go so far as to push you all in the audience. If you haven't got this little book in your library, you really should have. Because in it, Martin Lings makes a, a, both a modest but a profound statement. So the greatest problem for, or not, maybe the greatest problems, one way, I don't think he put it quite that way, but 
the greatest sadness is that 20th century man has lost his sense of the symbolic. Now you can only have a sense of symbolic if you believe there can be something beyond the immediate uh, experience you're having could, could be possible or could be true. That little book, um, to me, is, is an absolute gold mine. And what I've put on the screen here, because I'm quite well known as a great lover of Chartres, but St. Bernard, who is, was called the old man of Chartres, somebody wrote a description of his life, and I, it did occur to me, and I didn't realize that that description actually fits Martin Lings's life extremely well. A humble mind, a zeal to learn, a life of quiet, the silent search, a lack of wealth, a foreign land, these are the keys that open when we read the doors to light our night of ignorance. When we want to light our night of ignorance, these are the things that are needed. A humble mind, a zeal to learn, life of quiet, and a silent search. These days, silence is almost a treasure, if one can find it anywhere at any time. Even I'm rupturing the silence of this room, which I regret from one point of view. We only actually meet our maker in silence. I don't want somebody jumping up and saying, I haven't got a maker. They'll have the first one over there, please. And sorry, the next one over there. And the next one here. Now, I'm going to make a quotation here from the Jewish Bible, or the Christian Old Testament, whatever you want to call it. But to me, this is something of immense value to me, which I, again, can honor Martin Ling's for. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, and by it there is profit to them that see the sun. Of course, seeing the sun has, again, four levels of symbolism, if you wish, but it certainly has one level of symbolism, that is seeing the light, and being uh, uh, honoring the light, and, and understanding how nothing can be without light. And then this lovely follow-on, for wisdom is a defense, and money is a defense. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom giveth life to them that have it. And that really is the key to the crisis of the modern age. Next one over there, please. So we live on this extraordinary body, our mother, Mother Earth. And it, it is much more extraordinary than most people realize. We are, we're beginning to realize rather late how ignorantly we have been behaving on our Mother Earth. And there's quite a, we have to avoid panic at this time because we've got some quite difficult years to get through if we're going to survive. And we can only get through those years if we follow the guidance we've been given. The guidance we've been given are in the revelations of mankind and that's up to us which we choose. Next one here. Now the other thing that we traditionally live in what's called the sublunary world the material world, world of physical things and so forth, is that world below them. The moon is the nearest to us of the uh, gods or goddesses in the sky. And so I'm putting this image here. And the moon is the great time teller. I don't know how many people in this room actually read the time by the moon. And anybody here like to tell us which phase of the moon we're in at the moment? Can you understand my question? I can't either. But look, look, look where we're at. We, we don't even know what phase of the moon we're at. Somebody does, I know, because they're being quiet and modest and just not shouting too loud. <laughs> it's, 
It's disappeared now. Okay, ah, that's why I'm giving a talk. I have Friday. Friday we see the new moon. Okay. Thursday is new moon. Thursday is new moon. Before moon or Wonderful. Now we're getting some now, now we're getting some real information here. Of course it should be full moon on Easter Day. Anyway, I hope I've made the point. Next one over there on the right. Now for those of us who, in this room who have been sold the idea we live in an accident, um, which is pretty current in the scientific community, and that, and that in fact um, the Big Bang, the whole thing, has a huge accidental um, sort of qualities about it, um, it's quite useful to ask oneself what it, one think it means when we discover that the sun and the moon are exactly the same size to the human eye. Now that may, might mean nothing to some people, but to me it's a wonderful, wonderful indication. It only happens very rarely that we are able to see that, and again, we have to be very careful if we do look at it. That is the, um, uh, um, that is the moon obscuring the light of the sun. Not only can we see the whole aura of the sun, the subtle body of the sun, but we are seeing that the moon is exactly the same size as the sun in the night sky. Now, to some people, that may be just some glorious coincidence. But then, somehow, you've got to ask yourself what a coincidence really means. Is it something which is casual? Is it something which is accidental? Or is the meaning to it? Next one here. Now, again, I'm jumping into science now because somebody earlier were asking me about science. Because I'm talking about there being four worlds consistently in this talk, um, it might be of interest for those present, that there are four forces which hold the physical universe together according to modern physics, according to those who study the lowest of the four level, the lowest of the four worlds, and that is the physical world. The, um, if you take the nuclear forces, which are the most powerful ones that we know about, and, and use those as, as one, the power of one, the electromagnetic forces which keep the electrons moving around a nucleus, which tells us what kind of atom we're dealing with, that's 10 to the minus 2, see how much weaker it is, then what are called weak forces that when um, electrons can migrate and make molecules, that is 10 to the minus 14, and then the last one is the gravitational, what holds the planets, or particularly the planet Earth around the sun, is 10 to the minus 38. So there are only considered to be four forces which hold our physical universe together. That to me struck a note of if you like, coincidence. Next one over there. So how do we experience the world? We experience the world so consistently and we take it so much for granted, we forget the extraordinary, miraculous relationship there is between Earth, which I'm now presenting you as the rocks on the coast in Dorset. Earth, the next one we experience is water. And how is it these things are separate? These are the two consistently tangible and experienceable of the, of the four forces which we are made up of and our world is made up of, our direct experience. Earth, water, the next one over the far side there, air. Air is invisible, but we can only experience air, and I've had to use one of my photographs from Colorado because the moisture has been taken up and we can see it as a cloud. But air is actually invisible. The breath of life is invisible. 
important uh, metaphor again. And finally, fire, which has both the lowest and the highest. The, at the bottom level, one might say, it burns up evil. It burns up unnecessary waste. At the highest level, it transmutes into light. A flame gives light. So um, what's intensely interesting is that the modern physical world, the world of physics, they call these states solid state, liquid state, gaseous state, and the state of radiation. They have been replaced by modern physics for earth, air, fire, and water. The value of earth, air, fire, and water, as Martin Lings points out so well in his book on archetypes and symbols, they are symbolic of, in fact, they are four states of consciousness. They're four states of our own consciousness. Solid state of consciousness, liquid state of consciousness, gaseous state of consciousness. Blake explained it extremely well in his engravings. And finally, the radiant light state of consciousness. Next one over the far side. This is the point. This is a quotation from Martin. This is the point of why I chose the title for this talk. From the point of view of the world, the divine principle, the divine principle being unity itself, is hidden behind a number of envelopes. And of course, the word envelope is not an easy one, and most people probably thought I was going to give a talk on the post office or something. I don't know. <laughs> but what it amounts to is we carry with us a series of envelopes as part of our being. Tradition, this is the traditional teaching. Of course, the physical one is the one we get most concerned about and justify a lot of our bad behavior by saying, oh, I must get some money to feed myself and pay my rent. And of course you have to do all these things. But to be obsessed with that leaves you on the ground floor and you never find the other floors to climb into. Next one here. So also I thought I learned a great deal from dear Martin and one of them was to consult the Holy Quran. Of course, my problem is, many people like myself, I don't, I'm not able to read Arabic, but I think this, this speaks extremely well in the English. They ask thee concerning the spirit, in brackets, of course, the spirit of inspiration. And say, the spirit cometh by command of my Lord. Of knowledge, it is only a little that is communicated to you, O man. This is something that the human ego finds pretty hard to swallow. And yet there's not one single scientist who has any reason to go into his lab in the morning unless there's a mystery for him to solve. If it were our will, we could take away that which we have sent thee by inspiration. Then thou would find none to plead thy affair. It's a very fair warning. It's not a bloodthirsty warning, but it's just giving you an idea of thinking deeply about where your convictions lie. Next one over there. Now there's Kathleen on the far left, and um, the man in the middle is Ben Shimon Halevi, who's I'm going to quote from his book in a minute, and the lady on the right is my good wife. But I wanted to pay honor to Kathleen, because what Kathleen did by putting seminars together, she established something which people now only tend rather romantically to talk about 10th century Spain, when the amazing thing was Jewish, Christian, and Muslim scholars work together. Kathleen actually reconstructed that. Dear Brian is here tonight, and I, he and I were 
one of the people, one of the two people asked by Kathleen to begin to put something together which was able to acknowledge these different traditions not only could live together but they were actually revelations of the same single unitary God. And so it's one thing looking back in history and saying, well, what is it marvelous what they were able to do in Spain in, in, in 10th, 11th century. Somebody has got to recognize sooner or later this is happening here in London right now. There are people with extraordinary wisdom and Martin was one of them. And it's not surprising they've not been recognized at a higher level because it might have been unsafe if they were, if they had been. Next one here. This is the book by Ben Shimon Havlevi, one of my oldest and longest friends. We were art students together at St. Martin's School of Art. And in it, um, he has actually reconstructed and re-enlivened the teachings of the Kabbalah, which was the great contribution to the Spanish Renaissance, whatever. I think the Renaissance should be talked about as being a 10th century thing. I'm not happy about the Renaissance being talked about as being later. Next one over there. Now, in the Kabbalistic teaching, there are four worlds, and he describes them very well. They have particular names in this tradition, but the bottom world is the physical body. That's the body that we wear, and our body is made up of earthly, waterly, airly, and firely. I'm making up words now, but um, solid, liquid, gaseous. Rain. In other words, we have our bones, we have our blood, we have our breath, and we have our inspiration of the mind. That's what we're made up of, and that, that describes the physical body. And we can be, and have been, very easily imprisoned in that. And that's really one of the problems we have on the planet at the moment. Um, our perceptions are only in the physical. And the reason being that the word science currently is defined as only studying the empirical. And the empirical means that which can be experienced physically and sensorially. It does not embrace anything higher than that. So you can only, it's, they call it experimental science. And if you want just a little sliver, I have to be very careful where I, what I'm going to say next. Dear Charles Darwin was only studying that bottom world. And he was trying to make, he did a wonderful thing in showing the, the, the whole of life is one big family, that's fine. But a lot of other things, he, his ideas were simply, did not take into account the more esoteric teachings of all the traditions. Anyway, the next body up is called the psychological body. And that is um, what you do with the physical body. And, and I'll show you another tradition in a minute whereby that's sometimes called the life body. Above that, next one here, above that is the spiritual or the mind body. These are the four bodies going up. And finally, above that is the divine intellect body. I'm using the word body now because you could use the word envelope. Now, we are capable of operating perceptually at any of these levels. We can look at the world psychologically, we can look at the world spiritually, we can look at the world as a divine intellect. Divine intellect, of course, is an extremely high level where you have to lose what you normally call yourself to be able to engage with it. And that's something which is quite tough, particularly on the modern Western mind. Okay, next one over there. I'm now going to make a large jump, and forgive me, I'm going to make these large jumps quite a few times in this talk because I'm trying to demonstrate what Martin gave me what Martin Lings gave me was that whichever tradition you look at, if you look deeply enough into it, you'll find extraordinary common ground. This is a North American Indian dance going on here. 
And if there's any Kabbalists in the room, I know there's at least one Kabbalist in the room, you'll recognize this extraordinary um, thing she is holding and dancing with is almost a version of the Kabbalistic tree, which is quite extraordinary. But the four worlds are absolutely profound and fundamental to North American Indian spirituality. Next one here. This is something which not many people, I'd be delighted if anybody in this room has come across this. These are esoteric scrolls which were left behind by certain North American Indian tribes and they're in a museum in, in, in uh, Canada at the moment and they show the ritual of traveling through the four worlds and you need and I haven't got that knowledge, you need an explanation of what these four worlds are. Each of them is a lodge, each of them is a whole room in itself. You see the little footsteps starting in the far left there, and the little dot at the top is first lodge, second lodge. You have to pass through this extraordinary thing time and again, these creatures which are going to try and prevent you from getting into the next world, second lodge, two much larger and quite... Uh, Frightening monsters try to prevent you from getting into the third lodge, and then finally, rather more benign, but two arrows threatening you before you get into the fourth lodge. These are initiations into the four levels of your being, according to North American Indians. I've had the both good fortune and agony of having taken the first step, and it was so painful that I didn't think I was going to come out of it. And I found myself being a very typical Westerner. We're cowards on the whole. We don't like pain. We rush for the aspirin. Anyway, next one over there. So if we take one of the beautiful hymns or chants, whatever you want to call it, you see how this fullness runs through the North American Indian spirituality. With beauty before me I walk. With beauty behind me I walk. With beauty above me I walk. With beauty below me I walk. From the east, beauty has been restored. From the south, beauty has been restored. From the west, beauty has been restored. And from the north, beauty has been restored. From the zenith of the sky, beauty has been restored. And from the nadir of the earth, beauty has been restored. From all around me, beauty has been restored. The way you restore beauty is by evoking it and performing it. Just those very thoughts, just that very chant, will bring about those qualities which the chant is about, which is what all prayer and all hymns are about. Next one here. Um, very, very uh, quick, and I hope not irresponsibly quick, just to touch on the Vedic, or the sometimes called the Hindu. The word Hindu is not actually all that acceptable to um, the Vedanta, but nevertheless, if you take the Hindu faith, there are four levels and there's a fifth one. The fifth one is unity itself usually. The lowest one is called Anamaya and that is the um, material body, the material sheath, uh, our physical body. The next one is called Pranamaya and that is the vital or animated sheath, that is the life which moves the physical body. The next one is called the Manamaya um, or the mental sheath, that which guides the moving of the physical body. And then finally, Vijnaya Maya is the intellect sheath. That is when you make contact with the eternal ideas which actually enable this world to be in the shape and form it is. Above that, further, if you're fortunate enough and you have dedicated your life completely to the truth and 
to finding the truth, you can reach Ananda Maya, and it's called the bliss sheath, where you are at one with the rest of everything, and you as a self are lost because you're part of everything. So I won't go and read the rest of this, but just the last little piece at the bottom is the relevant one. The choice is the gift of free will. Our, our choice, which is the most extraordinary gift we've been given, and it's called the gift of free will. We can choose which of these bodies we want to inhabit. We can choose which of these bodies we want to actually, or which of these envelopes we want to perceive from. And that seems to be the key to it. Where do we choose to perceive our world? Is it purely a selfish perception? Is it a perception for a community, our family? Is it a perception for the whole of mankind? Is it a perception for the whole of the planet? We are going to have to learn to climb these levels pretty soon, as far as I can see. Next one over there. Now, I'm going to ask the knowledgeable in the audience as to where this comes from. Is it a hadith or is it part of the Holy Quran? Can somebody tell me? And I, I, I plead ignorance. It doesn't matter too much because what it says is good. You think it's hadith? I think it's hadith too, yes. But whether it's hadith or the, yes, it's more likely to be hadith. But nevertheless, what it's saying is pretty important. And it, there are two kinds of knowledge. The knowledge of the religions, the knowledge of the body. And it is religions, plural. Which is pretty important. Next one here. So I'm going to... Um, some of the people in the room here are students who are going to go to Sharf Cathedral soon. And I wanted to put forward an idea to you. Um, this is not a dogmatic idea. This is not something which I um, will live or die by. But if you are going to go into the front entrance of Chartres Cathedral, you have offered to you a very remarkable example of these four worlds. And I'm going to go through those for you. And I believe personally the Chartres Cathedral and dear man in the audience here who helped me write the piece on Chartres I pointed out, um, with the opposition, I'm afraid some opposition, that certain people were sent from Christianity down into Spain to learn from both the Jews and, and the Muslims about such things as, as the structure, and particularly the fourfold structure of, of the world. Next one here. Sorry, next one over there. Um, this doesn't matter too much, but this is just at the time of Chartres, philosophically, um, Fords were very much in the minds, um, and there's a set of examples, um, the four fixed signs of the zodiac, Aquarius, Leo, Scorpio, and Taurus, the cherubim, man, lion, eagle, and bull, which we find around Christ on, on the tympanum up there, um, then the four seasons, spring, summer, autumn, and winter, the ages of man, childhood, youth, maturity, and age, and the um, stages in existence, birth, growth, maturity, and decay, then the parts of man's constitution, which is what I'm talking about basically throughout this talk, spirit, soul, mind, and body. Now, I don't agree with the, this particular, putting fire second doesn't quite um, suit me personally. I would put fire under spirit and air under soul. But um, I just, just to point out, if one wants to investigate the philosophy of the time of Chartres, you'll find uh, quite a strong obsession. Quite, un quite obviously related to the fact there are four Gospels, there are four versions of what Christ came and said in Christianity. And one must never miss that. And those four versions 
pretty certainly are talking to the four different uh, layers of our being if we look at it that way. Next one here. Um, these are four of my students and a very worthy administrator called Ricky Suzuki who will be well known to some people in the room. And what you see there very clearly, um, unequivocally, the human world, then above it a series of statues. Now the interesting thing is that nobody, none of the historians, even the official historians of Chartres will tell you who those are. They just say they're kings and queens, but they don't know which kings and queens they are. Above that you'll see a set of 14, 14 apostles, and above that you'll see Christ at the very top. Okay, is that clear? Yes, of course it is. Four levels. Next one here. Now this is what I learned from Martin, that in Sufi language, if I can use those terms, there's the bottom one, the fifth layer, is Nasut, the human, human nature. The next one up is Malakut, the world of symbols, with the one which Martin pleaded that we should re-inhabit and rediscover. The third one above is Jabarut, the world of archetypes. The fourth one up is Lahut, the divine creative nature. And finally, the top one, which is virtually one which almost is incommunicable because it is, it's, it's total and complete, the quintessence, and that is the essential nature of God. They have been put together on the side there, essence, spirit, heart, soul, and body. Okay, let's go back to here. And here's the human level, Mrs. Dear Adam, who now teaches with us. And he is, what's interesting is, if he stood up on the top step there, all the patterns at the, below the feet of those statues would be the human level. In other words, what is being offered to human perception at that level is geometry, geometrical patterns. And that's not just fun, that's not just decoration, it has much more meaning than that. Now, above that, you'll see the feet of those those beings which are carved above that, those feet are not resting on the ground, flat. And you see, they're all light beings. They're suspended, and their feet are not under any pressure. Can you see how their feet are on the angle there? They are light beings. And so, in a way, already we're being shown um, levels of the subtle part of our nature. Next one over there. Now, as I've put at the very bottom there, the four levels are embraced by the divine unity or the Huwa. Um, so we're talking only about four of these. Fifth, the bottom one, the human realm. Now, Adam, as one of my students, is, is, is showing where the human realm is. Now, in Sufism here, Malakat is also called the, the realm of royalty. Now, you can put that down again to another extraordinary coincidence. But one thing we know about those statues up there, they are royal beings, although nobody... Uh, no historian has actually tried to say who and which royal beings they are. So that's a really remarkable coincidence. Next one here. And finally, the last two, very, very interesting, I'm going to point out here. We have three, 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 and three, twelve apostles. But we have one here and one here. And it's rather interesting, in the Masnavi, Rumi talks about there being 14 apostles. Well, I'm not into pushing or pulling anything to do with that. What it amounts to is, in this case, this is um, 
Oh, we need the next, the next slide over there, please, sorry. Um, the domain of royalty is the one below this, Jaburut, the realm of power, resides in the people who are totally committed to the, the message of Christ here, the apostles. And finally, the top one here, is Jesus as the Christ, the realm of the divine, the Lachut. What embraces all of them, and is symbolized by the great rose window, is the Huwa, that which is allness. We use the word all very easily, but very few of us really deeply meditate on what actually all means. Next one here. So that is the final image, and what is particularly powerful there is quite unequivocally we are seeing the light body, not just the physical body of Jesus the Christ, but the light body. And that shape is the first proposition in Euclid's elements of geometry. And we'll come back to that too. Next one over there. You see Christ's feet are certainly not weighing on the ground. They're, right, they're like this. They're not under any pressure from the weight of his body. In the school of Chartres, it was well known and published, and I discussed this with Martin Lings at length, um, if you're going to build something, if you're going to make something, if you want something to be a work of art, um, in this case, the School of Chartres built their worldview on the following foursome, and that is that the ground level was the literal or historic level. That's the level of our media today. That's the level of our newspapers, our television, everything else like that. We have all tried to be kept on this, this, this base level. Secondly, the allegorical or symbolic level. Thirdly, the tropological or moral level. The word tropological means the turning of the soul towards that which is morally correct. And finally, fourthly, the anagogical. The word anagogical has dropped out of the English language, not surprisingly, because nobody knows what it means any longer, but it actually means the unifying and the transcendental level. Those were the four things which had to be existing for something to be a work of art if you were working at Chartres. What pressure has anybody put under to even consider all those four today? Except our students at Vita who we press very hard. Next one here. Now, this is a little bit, little bit more, a little bit heavier, and um, don't worry if you don't catch it, or it's not that important, but from one point of view, it's very important, and that is um, Eriogena, John Scott Eriogena, great influence on the School of Chartres. He actually put this together, which is extremely interesting, and it's the four worlds described in a different language. The whole of nature is divided into four classes. That which creates and is not created, that which is that which creates and is created, that which is created but does not create, and that which neither creates nor is created. This is a very good example of the powerful level of abstraction that the School of Chartres were dealing with. But as I say, it's a little bit on the heavy side, but if you want to check out John Scott's Eriogena, you'll find it a very valuable thing to do. Next one over there. And I would like to put Kathleen amongst the Illuminati here. This poem has always been my favorite one of Kathleen's, and she has very profoundly, and as she herself said, this is a poem that is given. Brian, who's sitting in the audience somewhere, knows what that word given means. Um, it burns in the void, nothing upholds it, still it travels. 
Travelling the void, upheld by burning, nothing is still. You see those first two levels are about movement. Burning it travels, the void upholds it, still it is nothing. Already stillness is beginning to take over. Nothing it travels, a burning void upheld by stillness. So you get to the fourth level. Now that is a very profound poem of our time. Why I can say to you, I believe Kathleen was aware of the necessity of putting these traditional teachings, the traditional doctrines, the traditional revelations into contemporary way of being able to be read and understood. Very profound poem, that one. Next one here. And her master was William Blake. And William Blake was a visionary, and he was quite capable of seeing the different envelopes of the body. And this is an example of one, and the inhabitants of the, the whole spherical body. Time and again, sphericality is talked about as being the ultimate envelope that we have potentially about us as a being. Next one in all the different traditions. And I'm sorry this is rather long, but I'm going to run through it. And when the construct, this is Plato in the Timaeus, this is Timaeus talking about the construction of the soul. And of course one of the problems is we use the soul today rather loosely and not too specifically. It's very valuable for each one of us to ask ourselves what a soul means to us. When the construction of the soul had all had all been completed to the satisfaction of its constructor, then he fabricated within it the corporeal, and uniting from center to center, he made them fit together. In other words, the subtle body and the gross body were interpenetrating and fitted together. He made them fit together, and the soul being woven throughout heaven, every way from the center to the extremity, and enveloping it in a circle, again the word envelope coming in here, enveloping it in a circle from without, and herself, revolving within herself, began a divine and unceasing and intelligent life lasting throughout all time. That's a concept which is completely rejected by modern science, so one has to remember these things. Then I've drawn a blue line, forgive me. And whereas the body of heaven is visible, the soul herself is invisible, but partakes in reasoning and harmony. That is the function of our subtle body or two of the levels of our subbody, having come into existence by the agency of the best things intelligible and ever-existing as the best things generated. Inasmuch, then, as she is a compound, and Plato explains a bit earlier how difficult that compound was to, to make, blended are the natures of sameness, otherness, and being, or the same, the other, and being. Now that last line, to me, is one of the most powerful that comes out of Plato, the whole of Plato. It's not only Trinitarian, but in this particular case, it is as powerful as anything that Einstein came across in his Trinitarian statement. Sameness, otherness, and being. Very, very important meditation. Next one here. And of course, one can say it very, very simply, which has been done. Next one over there. Plato put our, what he called our knowing ability or agnostic powers in four layers. The bottom one was ecclesia, which is conjecture or estimation. We make an estimation first. 
we then rise up to the next level, which is pistis, which is the level of belief. We then believe something because we've made an estimation. Above that is dionia, and that is understanding. We then begin to find some understanding. And finally, nous, which is the knowing or intellection itself. That is where certainty lies. I can't help remembering, uh, which many people in the room will, not least our dear chairman, the interview with Jung, do you believe in God? And the nice heavy pause, because he was being asked at the third level there, number three, he said, no, I know. So he was referring to the higher level. If you experience certainty, then you don't need to get involved with what you believe or don't believe. That, that is another level altogether. Next one here. And uh, this is a, really a, in honor of John Michel, who's not very well at the moment, and I think that anybody has got a few spare time minutes to send some prayers to John Michel, it would be very gratefully received. But this is John Michel doing a slightly humorous um, drawing of the front door of Plato's Academy. At the top there it says Academia, and then in Greek it says, without geometry you're not welcome. And that's how and why we founded Vita. Next one, <laughs> not not welcome, but whatever. But this is the behind it comes this tradition again. This is Bishop Theory, great and a great man, and again lacking contemporary English translation. There's so many crimes. Not only is Ibn Sina not translated into modern English, but neither is Bishop Theory of Chartres. There are four kinds of reason which can lead man to a knowledge of his Creator. This is quite a statement. Namely, the disciplines of arithmetic, music, geometry, and astronomy. These are the universals. These are true for everybody. These are the universals. And that's what he's talking about. And the whole school of Chartres was based on studying these things. Next one here. And a way of looking at number and geometry can be seen in a very, very simple way. Number one is the point. And philosophical state equivalent is the essence. Number two is the line, two points, and the philosophical state is being. Number three is the plane, that is three points needed, and that is the philosophical state of virtue. And finally, four, the solid, which is the tetrahedron, is the world of action. And these are coming through the four worlds, very simply, but quite clearly. Next one over there. And not often, really, the esoteric doctrine behind geometry was quite carefully covered, and, and very much so still is in Islam. I found it very difficult to find any craftsman who would talk to me about um, their compasses, or even show me their compasses. And I realized that this, this um, esotericism which goes with geometry is still very much alive. And this was when I was in Tehran, in, in Iran. But here you see a medieval engraving and the pair of dividers or compasses themselves, they are in the shape of the letter A, the alpha at the top there. And the circle which the dividers make is the omega, which is here. Now, the very top of the dividers, which is under the control of the person using them, is the father. The point at which they rest on the surface which they're going to engrave is the sun. And that which embraces all things is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. The line above 
is theology, and that is light, lux of light. The, the, the area below is philosophy, which is trying to, to bring the light into the darkness, if you like. Philosophy is to try and make light out of darkness, whereas um, theology accepts light as the first principle. So, so the basic principles of geometry um, at a very simple level. And if anybody wants to go deeper into that, and they happen to be a Christian or a Jewish scholar, they might like to read the Proto-Evangelium. The Proto-Evangelium was, 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 I was sad to say, eliminated from uh, Catholic Christianity because they decided it wasn't correct. But in Orthodox Christianity, it's still very much an inspiring book for the painting of icons. And in that is an extraordinary story about Jesus being taught the alphabet by his first teacher and what Jesus said to his, his teacher. That was absolutely extraordinary. It is so extraordinary that nobody so far has actually translated it correctly because they're geometric terms that Christ used. He gave eight, eight different formula to the meaning of the letter A. The teacher said, we're now going to go on to beta. We've done alpha, we're going to go on to beta. And Jesus said, you haven't told me a thing about alpha yet. And then he rattled off these eight geometric statements. But most of the translators don't have the knowledge to get that right. So, somebody wants to do some good work, there's some good work to be done there. Next one here. So, the very simple fact of making the most comprehensive and most archetypal and most totally all-embracing shape is the making of the circle. We use the word, the word circle, circulation, recycling have all become fashionable, which is very, very good to hear and to know because circulation and cycling come from the act of making a circle geometrically. Next one now, bringing something back to its beginning. Actually, I don't think I'm going to go through the whole of this. It's rather long. I'm just going to read the bottom piece. This is from Plato's, Plato's Phaedrus, but at the very bottom it says the whole sense of it is that we come from, the soul comes from a place of complete purity and knows everything. And then it has to drink the waters of Lethe. But at the bottom he says, for we, for we were then pure ourselves, are not yet sunk into this tomb. This human physical body is talked about by Plato as being a tomb, Sema, which we bear about us and call it a body, Soma. And it, we are bound fast to it like an oyster to its shell. Now, unfortunately, contemporary empirical science is part of the major intellectual binding power at this time. It's very, very cautious. I gather, I think it's quite true to say that the word or psychology is not even allowed yet to have entered into the world of being an accepted science. And that's, that's where the dangers are, where we are at the moment. Anyway, I'll move on from that. I don't want to get into political hassle. Here we go. So you have images like that of, of the soul or body being, being, in a way, crucified by the three dimensions of space. This is, this is the body as, as uh, the tomb. And of course, what's interesting in this medieval um, little image here, not a very comfortable image, I apologize for it, but above is the soul in its completeness, the spherical octahedron, in fact, the spherical octahedron, which, we, it is, which is out, our escape. Next one over there. And this is a um, very nice quotation from William Blake. I question not my corporeal or vegetative eye any more than I would question a window concerning sight. 
I look through it and not with it. Now that's something which takes a little bit of thinking about. It's a really brilliant statement because it actually shows the uh, dangers of thinking that one is the sight itself rather than the, the self inside using sight to find out what is about. Next one here. And of course the other view, which is, this is from Dryden's song for St. Celia's Day, from harmony, from heavenly harmony, this universal frame began. From harmony to harmony, through all the compass of the notes it ran, the diapason closing full in man. In other words, this brings into what is normally called the psychological body or the body above the physical body. It is completely related to the notes of music, which immediately relates it to the seven planetary system and so forth. And we are harmonically related that way. Dryden puts it absolutely beautifully here. Next one over there. Sorry, this is slightly spooky, but um, painted by a very good friend of mine. Those of us who are coming to Chartres will meet him, Alex Gray, a contemporary artist who I have great respect for. He is showing the subtle body and the gross body together without the skin, so that's why it's a bit spooky with all the ribs and so forth. But here you see all the acupuncture channels, which are invisible until you know what you're doing with your needles, and also um, the chakras. Or the wheels, these are called the wheels of spiritual intake. Most people, now it's part of their language. And within those are the Sanskrit uh, sounds, the, uh, the mantrams which go with it. So this is a very good example of um, a contemporary artist and his vision of the subtle body. Next one here. And I slightly put this on the screen apologetically. This is a drawing I'd made myself about 40 years ago. I decided not to publish it because there's always a difficulty if you reveal chakras and you're not meant to, and chakras haven't been acknowledged by science or something. Anyway, this is proportional body of the figure. And the proportions which are used and understood to be used traditionally in architecture come from the subtle body. And this is just an indication of that. Next one there. And this is a drawing which is done in 1625, German alchemist. And you'll see the word rebus um, in mirror form. I'm not sure why it's in mirror form, because otherwise the woman and the, uh, the, the female side of this, it's an androgynous figure. In other words, both male and female together. She is holding the square, and the male side is holding the dividers. And that's, then you've got the planetary system, and then you've got the winged sphere, which Plato talks about the final stage of our lifting off the winged sphere, and one, two, three, four, the triangle, the square, and the circle. So that was the alchemist's way of putting forward the same ideas that were current at the school of Chartres, that if you studied these things, that is geometry, arithmetic, music, and astronomy, they would lead you to the source of creation. Next one here. And then I thought a quotation by Hildegard of Bingen would be appropriate because she puts it in a different way. Instead of having an androgynous figure, which is not something we can experience or could experience comfortably in the physical plane, hence, O saving lady, meaning the Virgin Mary, you who bore the light, the new light for humankind, gather the members of your son into celestial harmony. That's a very, very beautiful statement. 
because what she's actually saying that is what remembering is gathering members into a celestial harmony when we say we forget we actually dismember the wholeness of our experience so when she's talking about gather the members of your son which of course is the anthropocosm Jesus the anthropocosm into celestial harmony again the idea of being beautiful thing of music next one here this is Hildegard's painting of the fulfilled what she, this is called the true trinity by her and it's a wonderful example of the physical body within one of the other subtle bodies within the greater whole subtle body so Hildegard was a visionary she had these visions and obviously had reached these different stages and was able to get a, a painter an artist to do the pictures that satisfied her next one here and again that's what an icon is and, and does too um, what's so beautiful and powerful to me um, is the way in which the radiant light which is surrounding the Virgin and the Christ child is breaking through the rectangle of the framework here this rectangle here the light is breaking through it but here is Jesus as Christ in the heart of Mary and there we have a lovely image of the wholeness of our being if you like virgin as virgin consciousness Christ the saving consciousness being born from the heart of Mary I'm not an authority on these things and there is an authority in the room so I'm being quite shy in what I say next one over there and of course rather beautiful image of the um, Jewish menorah being imprinted on a lantern and again the metaphor being the light of course there are seven lights or seven candles which can be put into menorah and the eight nine ten of the joints coming down it but um, that's something which can be learned if you went into the Kabbalah but that is a lantern rather like the light in the Holy Quran the light which is in the niche neither the oil burns neither from the east nor the west next one here and just to only touch on the point that the same the same principles are to be found in Chinese philosophy and Chinese spirituality too that is somebody in a state of meditation and this is the way in which he unfolds the properties of his soul through through that activity next one over there and of course this you couldn't have a better example and if there are any of the students from Vita here who are going to Chartres you have the opportunity to actually look face to face directly at the light body of the Virgin Mary at Chartres and there it is that is the most extraordinary window and it's worth spending an hour or two in front looking at it it's the most extraordinary meditation because it is a light body quite literally and it's only in two dimensions and it's extra extraordinarily powerful and as far as I'm concerned I think I hope I demonstrated to a degree in the article I wrote and dear Ian edited for me that that figure determines the whole of the cathedral which was built as a home for Mary and of course Mary has so many different levels of meaning herself of course next one here this is Hildegard's painting of the universe and that is quite an extraordinary um, well you can make an extraordinary comparison with the Buddha the body of the Buddha being the whole universe next one over there and these things can be 
seen, if, they, if you wish, as coincidences, or they can be seen to be realities which we are being given a glimpse of just simply to ask us to raise our perception a little higher. But there are four bodies of the Buddha being shown there. The physical body, the first circular body behind him, and then another one which is the halo, and then what I was taught by my Tibetan teachers, the overall shape you see there is the actual Buddha. Um, my teacher was a Tibetan Buddhist and he said, this, this is merely the last incarnation of the Buddha, this is not important. That shape there is the Buddha, or Buddhahood. And of course we're not used to that kind of way of looking at things. And I expect quite a few of you have got books, beautifully illustrated books at home on Buddhism, and you have many pictures of the Buddha, and time and again the people cut off the top of the thing because they just want to show the body. That's the Buddha, the body. And that's where we're at. Next one here. This is a wonderful example, a little bit later than Chartres, but it's from Strasbourg when they were building the cathedral, Gothic cathedral at Strasbourg. The same indication of the light body, and you can see that in Virgin Mary and Christ child, and the tools of those who fabricated, and below the tools, the moon. That is, you're working in the sublunary world. You're trying to reflect in the material world the archetypes of the higher world. So you have a, the, that triangular thing is the way you've got a level in those days. There are two hammers for making stone cutting and the dividers. And the whole shape, again, is not only first proposition of Euclid, but it is an indication of the light body, which we saw around Christ when we saw the cathedral. Next one over there. And I'm going to finish on a slightly lighter note, and that is, some of you are probably very conversant with this, but one of the apocryphal parts of Christianity was they decided to cut out um, Christ's round dance, the dance that Christ um, instructed his apostles to do. And this is the hymn that goes with it. The grace dances, I shall play the orlos. The orlos is a, like a flute. The number eight dances with us. The number twelve dances above. The whole cosmos takes part in the dance. Whosoever does not take part in the dance does not know what shall come. And this was recorded by Clement, St. Clement, and part of the apocryphal Acts of St. John, that's where you will find it. So I thought it would be quite nice to finish on this image of the fact that life in a sense is a dance and in the way to try and bring that lightness into physical life, it's very interesting, the instinct to dance which, which takes part through all humanity. Next one here. And those who are aware of Sufi turning will see with the great long garments that are used a very similar symbolism, a very similar um, depth of meaning. Next one over there. And this is the dance of the, this is called the All Knowledge of the Buddha. This is in many uh, mandaras, J uh, Chinese ones and Japanese ones. The triangle with the square inside it and that surrounded by a circle. That is called the All Knowledge of the Buddha and it makes a confirmation of the importance of geometry as far as I'm concerned. I think I've got the last, no, there's two more to come. Next one here. I very much wanted to say that whatever wisdom I've, if there is any, in my talk, it came from 
um, both Martin and Martin leading me on to Fritzschel Schoen. And this book by Fritzschel Schoen, Form and Substance in the Religions, has a whole chapter on the five divine presences. And I would recommend anybody who wants to go into this rather more deeply and rather more carefully, this is where to get it from. Next one over there. Final thing I'd like to say is that one thing, and um, good lady present whose name I shall not embarrass her with, knows what a good gardener Martin Lings was and how many contemplatives like to spend the a great deal of time in the latter part of their days actually nurturing flowers. In fact, the Lord Buddha himself said if you could look at a flower properly, it would change your life. Well, I think that Martin Lings knew that. So I'm just going to finish with a quotation here by Rumi uh, in relationship to that. You are this very thought, brother. The rest of you is bones and fibre. If, if your thought is a rose, you're a rose garden. But if it's a thorn, you're firewood. Thank you very much. On behalf of the Tamanos Academy, I'd like to thank uh, Professor Critchlow for this wonderful cosmopolitan, universal, and uh, very comprehensive lecture on these levels of being. Um, as far as I can understand, and from whatever teaching I've had, all of us will land up in glory, but we, it's quite good to get your life right right now, though. <laughs> it's called detachment, isn't it? But um, at the moment, a lot of people are not too happy about detaching themselves from their savings in the bank. I'm sorry to be... <laughs> the meaning by that, we, we have, there are some pretty... Sacrifice is one of the key words to understanding what human life is about. And sacrifice is not a very fashionable word. Um, neither is serving a very fashionable word at the moment. And as far as I can see, these words are the ones, they're the key to us trying to actually make sure that, I mean, there's this program going on at the moment about evolution, a lot of it which annoys me intensely, but um, we are now in the sixth stage of mass extinction. This is what the conclusion was, and we are the cause sort of thing. And up to a point, there's a lot of truth in it. Mind you, Rumi did this wonderful poem I died as mineral to become plant, I died as plant to become animal, I died as animal to become man. When was I less by dying? And I was going to be angel blessed and things which we can no longer talk about. Well, there's a lovely saying which comes from the Vedanta, that is, seek knowledge, not acknowledgement. One of the diseases of contemporary time is trying to seek personal acknowledgement, which actually divides everybody from everybody else. Seek knowledge, not acknowledgement. It's quite a tricky one. It's not an easy task, but we're going to have to learn it pretty quick. Yes. Well, um, I don't want to blame it onto Martin Lings, but Martin Lings certainly caused me to really reassess what life is all about. And I, I would like to say something very important, and that is, although I've touched on all the different traditions tonight, the main, main reason for that was to show there's a universality behind it. But it doesn't mean to say that if you have a tradition, you should in any way dilute it by, by um, pick, picking and playing with other traditions. The only reason to, to look at another tradition is to confirm that is your tradition. And if you, if, you're, if you follow a particular revelation, you must stick to it. 
Mind you, there's, there's the concept which I quite like, and it's happened to me, and that is you have a mother religion and a father religion sometimes. The religion you're born into, and then sometimes you find there's another religion which can fulfill that. So there's no, there's no, um, there's no hard and fast rule to it. Proto, no, prot, it's not proto, protevangelium. Protevangelium. It, it's perfectly acceptable. You'll find it in, in, if you get a comprehensive book of the apocryphal texts of Christianity, they're pretty amazing. What's particularly interesting in this case is there's a story in the Protevangelium which appears in the Holy Quran, although it's been taken out of the Christian Bible. And that in itself must signify something. That is the story of Christ making little clay birds and then clapping his hands and they fly. Well, it is, it is. And the curious thing is that I have just been forced to study leaves, ordinary leaves. The reason being is there's nothing I'm made of which hasn't been made of green leaves at one time. None of, nobody's body in this room is ultimately not made out of the green world. The shape of many, many leaves, again, totally echoes this. And it has come to me very forcibly over the last year that the leaves are actually teaching us, as the flowers are teaching us, as much as anything teaches us, if we will only pay attention to them. And so these symbols are given to us in the natural world. A leaf doesn't have to be... I mean, look how many different shapes leaves are. But the, the most consistent one is the one which is like the light body of the Buddha. And I personally feel that it's, it's, it's a reminder. What are reminders? You know, what is zikr? Zikr is a recalling, isn't it? So ovals are interesting. Because if you actually say oval, then that's an egg. An egg is an oval. And it's because it has two centers inside it. A circle only has one center. Therefore, it, it, the seed has not yet germinated. It's not going to go anywhere yet. But once there's two centers in there and it becomes an oval, then it can generate. That's another very simple fact, which is... These simple things are rather sadly, at school, we've been... It certainly happened to me. We've been overlaid by what is scientifically correct to say. And what's happened is... And I personally, and, and I apologize to any botanist present, I found a terrible struggle getting through Latin names for flowers. I like calling a flower by a name that I was given as a child. But suddenly it's got this long Latin name and, and I feel totally alienated from it. And I think this has happened with the scientific world in many, many spheres. Actually putting names on things which are common experience. I'm getting on dangerous ground now. I love scientists, I do, I do, I love scientists. <laughs> I'm sure we've said enough, and I think probably going home and having some silence would be the best thing. <laughs>